0: There's a saying in politics, that goes like this, democracies always get the government they deserve. So if you live in a monarchy, if you have a king, you have no say over who the king is, you might get a better government than what you deserve, and you might get a worse government. So you might get David, and that's probably better than what Israel deserved, but then you also might get David's grandson, Rehoboam, which uh, is a lot worse. But in a monarchy, you always have a legitimate gripe. You can always truthfully say we never ask for this guy but in a democracy we do ask for the guy we get the government we deserve now Israel in the judges period is by no means a democracy but it's my contention in the case of a guy named Jephthah that Israel did get the leader that they deserve it's worth noting I think Jephthah was chosen more democratically than any other judge and we'll see how he's chosen here in a second so I want to talk about Jephthah this morning Let me say up front, this is a uh, sermon I would not choose to preach on if I had a choice, but I was asked to preach on Jephthah when I went to Tyler on Wednesday, and so I'm preaching that sermon for you. So we're going to think about Jephthah's story a little bit. The first-time reader of Old Testament history opens the book of Judges with great expectations. Uh, You've just finished the book of Joshua. Joshua is the story of God's conqueror who leads God's people into the promised land in fulfillment of Abraham's promises If you read the final chapter of Joshua, it's this rousing speech to all Israel, calling them forth to to march in faith and take possession of all that God has given them. We open the book of Judges expecting Israel to do what Joshua just called them to do, and then Israel promptly doesn't do any of that. In the opening chapters of Judges, this series of events happens. Number one, the people get comfortable living alongside the Canaanites and eventually become just like them. Number two, God punishes Israel for their sin. Number three, Israel appeals to God for deliverance. They, they find religion when things get hard. Number four, God will send them a deliverer or a judge. And then number five, a time of peace prevails as long as Israel remembers the covenant. But the peace is always short-lived in the book of Judges. They get re-Canaanized, and the whole process repeats itself about a half dozen times. That's the big repeating story of the book of Judges. I'm sure you've heard Heard that before. Sometimes it's called the Judges Cycle. But actually, each time that story is replayed, it looks a little different. And my contention is it looks a little darker each time it's replayed. Early on in the book of Judges, these periods of repentance seem to be genuine, and these periods of peace seem longer and more wholesome. But as the story goes, there seems to be a steady degeneration. Israel seems to be sort of circling the moral and spiritual toilet bowl as this book unfolds where the sin gets more serious in each subsequent repetition and the repentance they do manage gets a little more shallow and the deliverances they experience get less definitive. And then we reach this state near the end of the book. It's a phrase that's repeated a couple of times. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's where we end up in the book of Judges. Now, this degenerating trend also holds true when you examine the judges themselves. So there are 12 judges in all. Six of them are just very minor characters, just have a few lines about them. But the other six are major characters, have whole chapters, uh, long narratives about them. But those major judges, the first set of them, the first three, Othniel, Ehud, and Deborah slash Barak, these stories contain very few details, personal details about the judges themselves. We only learn about the deliverances they, they work. But the next set of judges, Gideon, Jephthah, and Samson, give us intimate glimpses of the personal character of each of these judges, and each of them sort of looks worse than the next. And each of their stories ends in personal tragedy. And so just as Israel is circling the toilet bowl in this book, so are its leaders. In Jephthah's story, we find a Canaanized people who get a Canaanized leader. We find a leader who matches the state of his people. So let's talk about the story of Jephthah. We're going to talk through the majority, just talk through the story, and then in the last couple of minutes, we'll talk about some points for home. So it's important to begin Jephthah's story with getting a picture of the nation that he he comes in to uh, lead. Verse 6, we have sort of the beginning of a new Judges cycle in chapter 10, and verse 6, where the people get comfortable in Canaan. They become Canaanites themselves, morally and spiritually, which then arouses God's covenant jealousy. This is Judges 10, and verse 6. The people of Israel... Again, it was evil on the side of the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, the gods of the Philistines, and they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the Ammonites. So we see here the, the intensity of their apostasy is signaled in verse 6 by a seven-fold catalog of the gods they serve. We have seven, seven different Gods, gods of seven different nations that they're serving. In other words, this isn't just a little lapse of faith. Whoops, I accidentally, accidentally burned a pinch of incense to Baal. That's, that's not what's happening here. They have given themselves over to every possible god they could. If there was an idol to sacrifice to, if there was a deity whose help they could solicit, if they thought that there was spiritual power on the, on the table for the taking somewhere, they were going to go try to get it. Well, in verse 7, we have God's response, which matches the intensity of their apostasy. For the first time in the book, God hands them over to two nations to judge them, and not just one, the Philistines and the Ammonites. This also prolongs the agony, uh, because the Philistine problem will stick around a lot longer, and Samson will be the one to deal with that. Well, in verse 10, we move to the next stage of the judges' cycle, where Israel sort of sobers up, perhaps, verse 10. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, we have sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. And the Lord said to the people of Israel, Did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites, from the Ammonites and from the Philistines, the Sidonians also, the Amalekites and the Minoanites oppressed you, and you cried to me, and I saved you out of their hand? Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods, therefore I will save you no more. Go cry to the gods to whom you have chosen. Let them save you in a time of distress. The people of Israel said to the Lord, we have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods among them and served the Lord. He became impatient over the misery of Israel. Now, taken at face value, the confession of verse 10 looks perfectly appropriate. They don't say anything untrue in verse 10. Right? So they say, uh, we have sinned against you, that's true. We have forsaken our God, that's true. We have shared the Baals, that's also true. And yet, God's response shows that confession probably should not be taken at face value. Because God doesn't say in response to that, you know, Israel, that's a wonderful <clears throat> confession. I know you mean every word of it, so let's get a judge in here to deliver you. That's not how God responds. Verse 11, he expresses his exasperation at all his past deliverances. Actually, God mentions seven deliverances he has worked on Israel's behalf, underscoring his perfect record of deliverance, which also corresponds to their perfect record of apostasy in verse 6. They served every god they possibly could, and God had just delivered them out of every enemy, enemy's hand he possibly could. A perfect record of deliverance on God's part, and a perfect record of apostasy on Israel's part. And then God says, instead of responding to all those deliverances with a commensurate commitment to the covenant... Verse 13, he says, you simply pocketed the deliverance and then continued to seek the favor of the Canaanite gods. In verse 14, God gets sarcastic with them. He says, go ahead, just act consistently with your apostasy. You love Baal so much, why did not you pray to him to deliver you? Why are you coming to me now? You love Baal so much, just keep asking Baal for stuff. And so by this point in Judges, it's becoming clear what Israel's confessions amount to usually. They're sorry for the consequences of their sin, but they are not sorry for their sin. I really like what one man said. It's a a quote we're going to revisit by the end of our sermon. One man put it this way of, of the state of Israel. It is possible to turn from idolatry in idolatrous ways. They are treating God as if he were just another one of their idols. They are trying to push the right buttons, make the right sacrifices in order to get him, in order to get God to exert his power for them. Their repentance here is glib. They're just trying to do the magic rain dance so God will stop being mad at them and they can get what they want. Well, in verse 15, Israel intensifies its expression of penitence, and yet their response, I think, shows some of those old signs of unregeneracy here. I want you to notice, even as they announce their complete submission to the will of God here, they say, God, do to us whatever seems good to you, which is sort of an expression of... of We prostrate ourselves before you. We have no right to tell you to do anything on our behalf. We are totally at your mercy. And that sounds very, very humble and penitent. And yet, in the next breath, they follow it up with a suggestion of what they think God should do. Do to us whatever seems good to you, but God, we have a suggestion of what that whatever should be. Only please deliver us, they say. So actually, don't do whatever seems good to you. Do what seems good to us. And then they even give God a timetable for this deliverance. Only please deliver us this day. They're still dictating to God. Well, God's response to their penitence is actually sort of ambiguous, the end of verse 16. My version says he became impatient over the misery of Israel. I'm told the literal expression of what God says would be translated like this. God's soul was short over Israel's efforts. God's soul was short, which seems to be a statement of God's exasperation. The point is, Israel's spiritual state is so sorry that not only is their apostasy getting worse in this book, so is their penitence. Not only is their apostasy getting deeper, their penitence is getting more shallow. They turn from their idolatry in idolatrous ways. And so in verses 17 and 18, when we discover Israel's desperation at an incursion of the Ammonites, We need not wonder whose fault it is. And so verse 18, The people, the leaders of Gilead said to one another, Who is the man who will begin to fight against the Ammonites? He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. The narrator has already let us know this desperation is completely self-imposed. Well, we are introduced now to Jephthah in chapter 11. The narrator introduces us to this man who will fill this vacuum. Who will lead us? Well, here comes the man who will do it. This is chapter 11, verse 1. Now, Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior but he was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah, and Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob, and worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. So the, the point to get here from Jephthah's early life is that he was born into a thoroughly sinful and Canaanized environment. So his father is named after the region where these events take place. The region is the Transjordan region east, uh, east of, the, of the, uh, uh, the Jordan River. And his father is named Gilead after that region, which some people think signals sort of a noble progeny for Mr. Gilead, um, referencing a leading position his family had in the region. That's what you'd name your kid if you had a nice holding of land in the region. Um, We see he's got got an inheritance of note that his sons are concerned about. But whatever nobility of birth Mr. Gilead may or may not have had, uh, we can say confidently it doesn't extend to his character. He fathered Jephthah through a prostitute. Now, we don't know this for sure, but it may have been the case that she was a cult prostitute of some Canaanite god. That's where many of the prostitutes came from. The name Jephthah means he has opened presumably referring to the fertility some god granted Jephthah's mother, as in, God has opened my womb. Now, which deity is meant there, which god is meant that has opened her womb is not made clear, and I think the author intends it to be ambiguous so that we will wonder. And then we have Jephthah's brothers who cast him out of their home at some point because they don't want to share their inheritance, they don't want this illegitimate son to dilute the inheritance. So Jephthah grows up to be a mighty warrior, we're told, but minus the honor that is sometimes, uh, sometimes associated with, verse 3 says that he lives in the hills of Tob which, with a bunch of other outlaws. and Who knows what they were up to? Well, in verse 4, the Ammonites begin to make further incursion into Gilead. And the leaders of the Transjordan tribes are so desperate for someone to lead them into battle, they bring in this wilderness outlaw, Jephthah, and they make him an offer. They say, if you'll deliver us from victory, then you will be our king. We're so desperate, we're going to the criminals. We're going to someone who will have some courage, some savvy to come help us. And Jephthah sees this opportunity, and he seizes it. He uh, rubs their nose in it a little bit, and he says, oh, now you want me. Now you want me in Gilead when you need me. And they say yes, and so an agreement is is made. Now, in this section, there are also clues here placed by the narrator, alerting us to the fact that what's happening here on the part of both Israel and Jephthah is, is, is largely self-interested, cynical, and not especially faithful to God. Just a couple of things. One clue is that the call for a leader in 1018, which Jephthah accepts in 11.9, is pure appeal to human ambition. The offer is, lead us to victory and you can be our king. And there is no higher appeal anywhere here made to God's promises or made to the covenant or to national solidarity, which is in stark contrast to the book of Joshua and even the first chapter of Judges, in which this question is posed, who will lead us? And the the appeal is made not on the basis of whoever will lead us will get power, but whoever will lead us will be acting in faith to God's promises. That's not what we have here. What we have here is a naked offer of power. A people who make this offer and the person who accepts it are both saying something about themselves. Now, another clue here that what's happening in here is not especially faithful is the conspicuous silence of God in this story after chapter 10 and verse 16. After God's exasperation with Israel's repentance, we don't hear from God again in this story. Now, there's sort of an exception when God's spirit falls on Jephthah, and we'll talk about that. But God is silent in the story, which is in stark contrast to the other judges' stories. Take the story of Gideon, for example. The story of Gideon, God is instrumental in selecting Gideon, and throughout the mission, God is speaking. People are asking God's help. God is answering and speaking and, and giving them the, the things that they want. And Jeff, the story, God's silence is deafening. And so one man put it this way, God has relegated to the role of silent witness to a purely human contract between a desperate people and an ambitious candidate. As far as we know as readers of this story, God's still in the state he was in in 1016, short over Israel's repentance. Well, in chapter 11 and verse 12, Jephthah is appointed leader, and he wastes no time engaging with the king of Ammon, this rival king who is making incursions into Gilead's territory. Given his background as an outlaw in the hills, we might expect Jephthah's first recourse to be war. This is a guy who fights. But actually, we're surprised to see that Jephthah is quite the diplomat, and he's smart. This is chapter 11 and verse 12. Then Jephthah sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites and said, What do you have against me that you have come, uh, come to me to fight against my land?" And the king of the Ammonites answered the messengers of Jephthah, Because Israel, has, uh, Israel, on coming up from Egypt, took away my land from the Arnon to the Jabbok and to the Jordan, now, therefore, restore it peaceably. So the king of Ammon's justification for invading these regions is that these tribes are occupying what historically was Ammonite land. And what follows in verse 14 is an extended response from Jephthah outlining how Ammon's grievances have absolutely no basis in geography or in history or in theology. We don't have time to get into that. I'll just tell you one big takeaway from uh, Jephthah's speech, which takes up the rest of of the section. One big takeaway we get from Jephthah's response is that this guy is no dummy. Jephthah is smart and assertive. He knows how to untangle an argument with logic. He knows how to be persuasive. He's a student of history and geopolitics. He knows how to see through the propaganda of this rival king and to see, yeah, that's your justification. But I know what's really happening here. You see weakness. You see a vacuum of leadership in Israel. And you see an opportunity to expand your territorial holdings. Jephthah sees through all of this. He knows exactly what's happening. One man said of, of the of the rhetoric Jephthah uses of the argumentation, put it this way, the speech is remarkable not only for its length but the formality and sophistication of Jephthah's argument. Yet I also want to point out one other thing. There are signs within Jephthah's savvy speech that his worldview has been compromised by Canaan. This is verse 23. We'll dip in in the middle of his speech here when he says this. He says this to the Ammonite king. So then the Lord, the God of Israel, dispossessed the Amorites, not the Ammonites, but the Amorites from before the people of Israel, and are you to take possession of them? Will you not possess what Chemosh, your God, gives you to possess? And All the Lord, our God, has dispossessed before us, we will possess. So his argument here is built on... A, an assumption that any Near Easterner would have shared. The assumption that's behind what he says here is that each nation had a patron deity whose duty it was to provide for his people. And his argument is, Israel simply possesses what their God, Yahweh, has given them. All we've gotten is the land our God gave us, and you Ammonites should be content with what your God, Chemosh has given you. Now, it is possible Jephthah doesn't really believe what he's saying, and he's simply accommodating himself to Ammon's worldview. That's one reading of this, but I think the uh, the safer reading, the more straightforward reading, is to say this, that Jephthah has simply imbibed the pagan logic of Canaan. You've got Chemosh, we've got Yahweh. You have the land your God gives you, we'll have the land our God gives us. In which case, he sees Yahweh as one of many. And yes, he credits Yahweh with giving them this land, but he's also saying Yahweh's just our patron God. You've got your God and we've got ours. In which case, while Jephthah is savvy and smart, he is also deeply pagan in his worldview. Which doesn't mean he's subtracted Yahweh from his pantheon. doesn't mean he disbelieves in Yahweh. It just means he's added more gods to his pantheon. He doesn't believe in less gods, he just believes in more. More often than not, that's what Israel's apostasy looks like. They don't have less gods, they have more gods. There is room in Jephthah's worldview for more gods and more sources of divine power. And it is conceivable that Jephthah might resort to pagan ways of soliciting God's favor. Which brings us to the next section. So verse 28 says, Ammon ignored Jephthah's speech and they continued to press into Israelite land. And so the battle commences in verse 29. And the spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh, and passed through Mizpah of Gilead, and from Mizpah of Gilead he passed on to the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand. And he struck them from Aror to the neighborhood of Mineth, 20 cities as far as Abel-Karamim, with a great blow. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. Then Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child, besides, she had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low and have become the cause of great trouble for me, for I have opened my mouth to the Lord and I cannot take back my vow. So the battle takes all of two verses to narrate. Verse 29, Jephthah rouses the troops throughout Gilead. In verses 32 and 33, he dispatches with the Ammonites easily. There's no details about the battle. We take note, God does end up having mercy on Israel after all. We weren't so sure at the end end of chapter 10. But verse 32 credits God with the victory. The Lord gave them into his hand. And yet the deliverance is tarnished by a vow Jephthah makes. In verse 30 he says, God, if you will deliver the Ammonites into my hand, then I will sacrifice whatever or whomever comes out to meet me from my house at my return. Now, if you knew anything about Jephthah before this sermon, this is the story that you knew. There are lots of questions about exactly what happened here. Um, I've got them as much as you do. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to spend a little time here. I'm going to come out and say exactly what I think happened here. I'm going to lay all my cards on the table, and I'll go back and explain why I think it. We won't run down every possible rabbit trail. There might be another question or something that I'll be happy to discuss with you after. So here's what I think happened. I think from the beginning, Jephthah intends in his vow to make a human sacrifice. I think that's what's going through his mind in the beginning. I think he expected that sacrifice to be of his servant, one of his servants, and not his daughter. I think Jephthah actually went through with the sacrifice of his daughter. I think this is all a piece with Jephthah's paganized worldview. And I think the narrator intends us to read this story as one of the low points in this sorry period of Israel's history. So let me notice a few things in the text. First of all, the narrator shows us that Jephthah's vow is an act of unfaithfulness. At the very least, it's it's an unnecessary vow. And the narrator intends us to see that Jephthah's vow has absolutely nothing to do with securing victory. The victory was secured before the vow and without the vow. I say that because in verse 29, God's spirit comes upon Jephthah as he rouses Israel to battle. God's spirit always falls upon the judges before their deliverances. That's God's means of giving Israel victory. He sends his spirit to the judge, and then that spirit-led judge leads them to victory. Here's what you should notice. The, 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 The spirit, the means of victory happens in verse 29. The vow happens in verse 30. The spirit falls before the vow not after it. And I think this order of events reveals Jephthah still remains insecure about the outcome and he's seeking to secure God's favor through other means despite the fact that the means of victory were already secured. So at the very least, we must say this about Jephthah and this vow. Whatever else we might say, we can say this. This is not the bold faithfulness of Joshua and Caleb. Do you know what the faithful logic of Joshua and Caleb is? In the book of Joshua, you know, you know what those, those guys say? They say, Israel, did God promise us this land or not? And if, this an- if the answer is yes, God did promise us this land, it's high time we acted like God's pro- promises were true, and we should just go march and do what God says. That's the faithful logic of Joshua and Caleb. You don't have that here. There's an uncertainty. We've got to tug on God's tunic by some other means. We've got to secure the means of victory through some other superstition. Now, an argument that Jephthah intended human sacrifice from the beginning, this is a part of it I didn't think before I studied, and now I do think it. I think Jephthah intended human sacrifice in part because the grammar of verse 31 points points us in that direction. I'm told that whoever is likely a good translation of the word he uses, not whatever, but whoever comes out of the doors to meet me. And then that phrase, whoever comes out from the doors to meet me when I return, describes the purposeful action of a person and not something like an animal aimlessly wandering out of a barn. Jephthah has done little in this text that warrants us giving him the benefit of the doubt. And I think it does no violence to the text to say, Jephthah is so thoroughly paganized that he knows full well what he's doing and he is so bent on winning the battle to attain his selfish ambitions, he'll do whatever he thinks he has to in order to achieve that victory. Now, it is also worth noting that the cults of the gods of the region like Milcom and Chemosh and Molech, the cults of the gods of this region who Israel had been worshipping in chapter 10 and verse 6 and had given themselves over to, the cults of those gods practiced human sacrifice and at several points in Israel's history, Israel joined in in sacrificing humans to those gods. 2 Kings 3.27 is one place. To the pagans... A sacrifice of a person was not a rash and impulsive decision. It was a deadly serious expression of your devotion to God. Jephthah, I think, was so determined to achieve victory, he was willing to sacrifice a person to to gain a divine guarantee. I think what we said of Israel in chapter 10 is as true of Jephthah. He has turned from from his idolatry in an idolatrous way. Yes, he's talking here to Yahweh, but he's relating to Yahweh like someone would relate to Chemosh or Molech. He's trying to push the right buttons. He's trying to make the right sacrifices. He's going to do the the right moves in order to secure his divine outcome. The inner logic of of human sacrifice in paganism was if you want to get something big from the gods, you've got to give something big to the gods. And the biggest thing you could give to the gods was a human being. Now, there are well-meaning interpreters who try to make the text say other things than what I've set forth here. And, and so one, one, one way would be to say, Jephthah's intention from the beginning was to offer an animal sacrifice. That wasn't his intention. So what's wrong with his vow was that it was rash and unthoughtful, not that it was evil from the beginning. Someone else says, well, no, he, uh, he really was dedicating his daughter. That was the vow. But what he was dedicating her to was life and service of the tabernacle. That's what he was dedicating her to, not not to make her a sacrifice. And still someone else will say, well, Jephthah redeemed the life of his daughter. He could have redeemed the life of his daughter with a substitute sacrifice, which, by the way, the law of Moses does say something about. People quibble about whether or not it's applicable here. Now, we could get into all of those, um, those rabbit trails. Here's my big issue with all those interpretations. My big issue is this. The text just doesn't say any of that stuff. The text just doesn't say any of that. It doesn't say it explicitly, and I don't think you can find it between the lines either. Here's what the text says, Jephthah pledged. The text says, Jephthah pledged God a burnt offering sacrifice of whatever or whomever came out to meet him. That's the first thing that happens. He pledges a burnt offering sacrifice. To his horror, that person was his only daughter and not a servant. And then, verse 39 says, Jephthah, whatever he vowed, he went through with his vow he did with her according to his vow that he had made. For what it's worth, and maybe not very much, uh, most commentators, ancient and modern, believe that is what happened. Now, let me say this and put this into context. This is an account of what did happen. It is not an account of what ought to have happened. That is... Very true in the Old Testament history. It's extremely true in the book of Judges. These are accounts of what did happen, not what ought to have happened. And if we read this story and we get uncomfortable and we squirm in our seat and we say this is all very, very evil and bad, good. Because that's what you're supposed to say when you read these stories. I think we need not try to justify Jephthah's paganism any more than we try to justify Samson's affinity for prostitutes. The point is these were not pious men. This is a tragic story nested in a larger narrative of an Israel that's already circling the moral and spiritual toilet bowl. Human sacrifice was how you bought off a pagan god and all but guaranteed their favor. And that's what Jephthah is trying to do with the God of Israel. The tragedy is Jephthah is so paganized, he doesn't realize, number one, God never asked for this and God would never ask for this, and that God regards such things as human sacrifice as an abomination. Jephthah's too paganized to realize that. Number two, he's too paganized to realize he already had God's spirit, he already had God's victory in hand, and the vow was utterly meaningless in securing that. And what's tragic is, number three, the law of Moses did provide redemptive substitutes to foolish vows like these. The problem is the text doesn't say that he did that, and perhaps he did, had no awareness of such a thing. And so the narrator gives us two little verses about the victory, followed by a dozen verses about the tragedy that overshadowed the victory. The irony is a vow meant to secure peace and security ends in the death of Jephthah's only daughter. A victory which should have won him and his progeny kingship for generations is overshadowed by a vow which meant the elimination of his entire line because his only daughter, his only daughter, is killed. Well, Jephthah's story ends pitifully. The Ammonite vit- victory was a personal tragedy for Jephthah, but it was a pol- political military success. They, they did uh, uh, subdue Ammon. And yet, in chapter 12, in these verses, whatever success was achieved in the Ammonite campaign basically comes unraveled in a civil war. Uh, the Ephraimites here pop up. They pop up a couple of times. They seem like a rash, impulsive, proud violent uh, tribe in this era. Um, Gideon had trouble with them in his era, although Gideon was able to assuage their anger. Jephthah just inflames their anger and and, uh, fights them. You have here that little cute little story about how the Ephraimites didn't know how to say the word shibboleth or couldn't pronounce it uh, correctly. And that's kind of told as a cute story. There's really nothing cute about it. The point of that is that was Jephthah's means of ferreting out who was an Ephraimite so that he could kill them, and he ended up killing 42,000 of his own brethren, of his own countrymen. There's really nothing cute about this. Now, most of the judges' narratives end with a statement like this. God gave Israel rest from their enemies. There's peace. Everything's okay. Nothing of the sort is said at the end of Jephthah's story. This is chapter 12 and verse 7. Jephthah judged Israel for six years. Then Jephthah the Gileadite died and was buried in his city in Gilead. I think what was said of Israel, everyone did what was right in his own eyes, is true of Jephthah. He certainly had more courage and savvy than his countrymen. We could say that for him. No one else would fight. He would fight. But sadly, he also had a paganized worldview that his countrymen had too. Jephthah's story represents, I think, an ethical and spiritual low point in an already pitiful era. So let's end with a few points for home, very briefly. Number one, what do we learn from Jephthah's story? Number one, prowess does not equal piety. (coughs) There really are things to admire about Jephthah. Here's a guy who came from a horrible origin story. He's cast out of his house. He's an orphan for all intents and purposes. And he rises up to become the foremost general in his time and eventually a leader of the Gileadite tribes. He won the support of his countrymen. He was empowered by the Spirit of God. He was a savvy diplomat with, with, a, with a facility for words. And yet his story ends in tragedy. Why? Because in spite of his prowess, in spite of his intellect, his bravery, he lacked true piety. He knew how to handle a sword. He knew how to negotiate with a rival king. He knew how to get to the top of a hierarchy. He knew biblical history. He was an instrument of God to li- deliver them from Ammon. But the guy didn't know how to pray. He didn't know how to solicit God's favor except through the pagan ways of superstition. He didn't know how to faithfully trust God's promises, as Joshua had. He didn't know how to order one's life God's way. As Jesus would say, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and he forfeits his own soul? You know, it takes a lot of savvy. It takes a lot of smarts to gain the whole world. You can't be a dummy and do that. Jesus would say, what's the point if you just lose your own soul in the process? I think what's really scary about Jephthah's story is in spite of the fact that God really was working through him, he was an instrument to deliver God's people from the Ammonites, despite that fact, it did not mean that Jephthah knew God and that his heart was right. And so we can be successful in our careers... And we can be skilled in ways which are of use to the church and the kingdom of God and at the same time still be unregenerate in our character. That just because we're good speakers and good leaders or good teachers and just because God might really be using us in some way does not necessarily mean that our hearts are all the way pleasing to him. In the sad ending of Jephthah's story, where, where God's people are left in just as bad a state as they were before, before he led them, The sad ending of Jephthah's story says, I think eventually that lack of piety will undo all the results gained through the prowess. Prowess does not equal piety. Number two, Jephthah's story teaches us that success gained at the expense of one's family is not success. You know, I I think it's fitting that the main thing we know about Jephthah is his tragic vow, which I think resulted in in the sacrifice of his own daughter. That really does overshadow whatever else happens in this story. Remember, the account of Jephthah's victory takes all of two verses to narrate, two piddly little verses. We know almost nothing about the victory. And yet, in the next dozen verses, the text takes pains to show us the excruciating series of events that follow as he returns home. We didn't belabor this for sake of time, but read the text for yourself this afternoon and see how beginning in verse 34 the suspense is drawn out. Jephthah returns in victory. His daughter comes out out of the house to meet him with tambourines. We learn then she's his only child. We remember his vow. We witness the perverse faithfulness to this unfaithful vow. Our heart breaks over her resignation to her fate. She is sort of a, a bright spot in this horrible story. There's two months of mourning, and finally the sorry vow is fulfilled. It's also fitting, the only memorial of remembrance from this era is in honor of Jephthah's daughter, the victim of this vow. This is verse 39, chapter 11 and verse 39, the end of verse 39. She had, uh, she had never known a man. It became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went year after year to lament the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite, for four days a year. There is a monument for Jephthah's daughter. There is no monument, there is no holiday commemorating Jephthah's victory over Ammon. There's no memorial of that. No one thinks he deserves one. See, Jephthah's vow says more about him than Jephthah's victory. His failure at home overshadows his successes in the battlefield. Jephthah was willing to sacrifice his own child to ensure his own selfish goal. He was not the first person to do that, and he won't be the last. And so we need to say there is no amount of money big enough. There is no earthly cause important enough. There is no self-fulfillment real enough. There is no sin pleasurable enough that is ever worth the cost of losing our families. Success gained at the expense of one's family is not success. Number three, third and finally, beware of serving God in idolatrous ways. Israel repents of their idolatry in an idolatrous way. Yeah, they went through the right moves. But it seems like that's basically all they were. They did the rain dance when it was time to ingratiate themselves to God. They did the superstitions. They got what they wanted. And then they went back to doing whatever they wanted in the first place. Jephthah follows that model of idolatrous repentance. He makes a pagan-style vow to the one true God as if upping the sacrificial ante guaranteed him the success he coveted. That's pagan logic embodied in him. Both Israel and Jephthah are examples of people so steeped in a pagan worldview that they know of no other way to conceive of God or relate to him except for the pagan way. If either of them were as steeped in God's word as Joshua was, they would have done the sorts of things Joshua did. You know the sorts of things Joshua did? Joshua repented with his whole heart when he sinned. He wasn't just sorry for the consequences of his sin, he was sorry for his sin. You know what Joshua did... Joshua marched forth in faith with the assurance of God's promises being all that he needed. He didn't need to to secure God's favor through some other superstition. He just needed God's promises and he needed faith in those promises. You know what Joshua did? Joshua was a servant of God. He was not trying to enlist God into his service. He was not trying to indebt God with a big enough sacrifice so we could get what he wanted back from him. That's what Joshua did and that's what Jephthah and Israel did not do. And so beware of letting the culture shape you and then bringing that culture-shaped mind to church. Do not let the culture tell you who God is and what he is like. Do not let the world tell you what a human is and what we're here for. Do not let the world tell you what marriage is or what child-rearing is. Do not let the world tell you what matters in life and what the good life is and then bring all those world-formed opinions and views into church. The message of Jephthah is, steep yourself in the word of God day after day. Strengthen your bonds with the family of God. Let God form you, not the world form you, and then you come to try to serve God with that world view, that world's world view in your head. Now, I normally like to end sermons on, uh, on an encouraging note, if at all possible. But as I reach the end of this one, I felt like trying to finagle a happy ending just doesn't do justice to the text. Because there's really nothing happy about Jephthah's story. I think Jephthah embodies all that's wrong with Israel. He is the leader Israel deserved. As a result of his disastrous six-year reign, Israel had become as fragmented and as pagan as the Canaanite people they were supposed to be casting out. And so all I think we can say about Jephthah's story is this. Take it as a cautionary tale. To let your repentance be real, to let your discipleship be genuine, And don't let the pagans tell you how to worship God and enlist yourself in the service of God and stop trying to enlist him into your service. So maybe there's someone here this morning that realizes that you've been trying to relate to God through the world's ways, with the world's worldview in your head. Maybe there's someone that needs to do real repentance, to come to terms with your sin, and to be sorry not just for the consequences of it, but for the fact that you're at odds with the God of heaven. If there's anyone who needs to repent, or come and to dedicate yourself to God's service in the first place. Come forward now as we stand and
1: sing. I'm prepared to meet thy God. Careless soul, oh, heed the warning. For your life will soon be gone. Oh, how sad to face a judgment. I'm prepared to meet thy God.